I remember just crying. It was honestly unbelievable. And I don't say that lightly, it just did not seem real. From the team behind Stylist, this is Nobody Told Me. Stories of life, love, grief, success and failure, and the lessons learned by the women who survived to tell the tale. I'm your host, Lisa Smazarski, Editor-in-Chief of Stylist. In today's episode, we're joined by Alexandra Wilson, a junior barrister and author of In Black and White, a young barrister's story of race and class in a broken justice system. Growing up on the Essex, East London borders, Alexandra had a happy childhood filled with the love and security of a large group of family and friends. But her world was shattered when one of her close childhood friends was murdered at the age of 17. Through a combination of grief and a desire to change the world she saw around her, she set off on a journey which found her on the inside of the justice system. This is Alexandra's story in her own words. My name is Alexandra Wilson. Nobody told me that my friend's murder would lead me to a career fighting for justice. I was always a pretty well-behaved child. I was a bit of a goody-two-shoes. I used to work really hard. My nickname in my family was Matilda. I thought I knew everything. I was determined to be Prime Minister when I grew up. That was my thing. I'd fixated on the idea that I was going to be Prime Minister. I'm really, really close to my family. So I have a really, uh, really close relationship with my parents and my siblings. My family will often be the family to kind of, you know, host parties. And there's so many of us and everyone has kids and cousins. And so we've always grown up with like loads of cousins. I think it's the best. It's like having friends before you even go to school. I don't even remember when I first met Ayo because he's been friends with my cousin forever. You know, he used to come to a lot of our, the, the family parties that I talk about, he'd come to those. The adults would be downstairs talking about adult stuff and, you know, we'd all be upstairs, they'd be playing PlayStation. Christmas and Boxing Day, we'd always see him. He was like part of the family. I grew up with him alongside my cousin. He was such a kind person. He was very funny. He was the sort of person that you could have a conversation with about anything. Yeah, he was lovely. We'd all hang around together because we were all a very similar age and we were getting to that kind of age where you want to kind of start going out a bit by yourself without your parents. I remember we'd, we'd do things like go bowling or, you know, go to the cinema or just, you know, all hang around at my cousin's house. None of us were aware of, aware of any violence when we were younger. Perhaps I was naive to the fact that a lot of this stuff could happen. But I mean, my cousins, my, my friends, no, no one was involved in anything like that. We were just kids. You know, we would talk about what people were doing after school. And I remember we'd go to like Tinseltown in, in London and go and get milkshakes. And that was like super, super exciting. It was just not really on my radar. None of us had any experience of anything like that. It was a normal day. You know, I'd come, I'd come back from sixth form and I was just studying. I had a little desk just under the window in my bedroom. 
I was sitting at that desk when my dad came in and told me. I remember how many times he called my name before I kind of, you know, properly responded. I probably was, as many teenagers are, a bit irritable and a bit stroppy with him for disturbing me. As I said, I was, you know, a bit of a a nerd who really wanted to do well in my exams. I wanted to revise and did not appreciate being disturbed. And I remember dad calling me a few times. I remember it was dark outside and there used to be a lamppost just outside my bedroom window. And I just remember just how bright that light was, you know, when I was sort of being told and it, that was the only thing I could kind of, it was just the one thing kind of focusing me. I had gone out that day to play football with one of his friends. That evening, Io was stabbed a number of times. Basically, he had gone to an unfamiliar area and there were a group of boys that, or two guys that had, they were out to avenge the death of their friend who'd been killed that morning. And they saw someone they didn't know. And he was, as I say, he was stabbed multiple times. He was chased into a cul-de-sac. His friend managed to get away. And yeah, he he wasn't so lucky. Afterwards, paramedics were called, but he died before he got to hospital. After Dad had told me, I remember just crying. It was honestly unbelievable. Um, and I don't say that lightly, it just did not seem real. I think what, what then kind of made it difficult was it was then on the news, you know, it was then in newspapers. Sometimes the public can be dismissive of cases where um, it's believed to be, you know, gang affiliated, but where this case was so clearly a mistaken identity, the media kind of really did report on it. And so that made it difficult because, you know, you, you could click on the news and see it. Part of it was kind of processing it myself, but also wanting to be there for, you know, my cousin, first and foremost. Me and my cousin were so close. So it was wanting to support him. It was wanting to, you know, be there for the other friends in our group. It was wanting to be there for my aunties, my, my family. It was wanting to show support to his family. I can't even imagine how difficult it must have been for them in those few weeks. Well, and, you know, it probably continues to be. I was 17 um, when he was killed. There was a funeral and a memorial service for him. One of the things that made those so, so difficult for a lot of people were how many young people there were there because of you know how young he was. I remember that people were wearing uh, T-shirts that had been designed with his, his face on and it was just heartbreaking that you know all the photos were of a child because a child had been killed we all were so frustrated with what had happened and so upset um, and nobody told me my friend's murder would lead me to a career fighting for justice at that time I couldn't even think beyond the next day let alone think of think how much 
his, his death would shape my career. I knew that I was, I was clever and I'd always worked hard and people sort of said that, that, that Oxford wasn't for people like me, you know, people who are from Essex don't have, you know, loads of Oxbridge people in their family, well, don't have any Oxbridge people in their family, um, who went to, like, normal state schools. And there was a lot of that rhetoric. And I was determined to kind of at least try and so that then I could be sure. I still remember receiving the the letter from Oxford. The letter comes regardless of whether you get in and I panicked. I remember panicking when the letter came and I was like, you know, is it too thin? Is it too thick? I, before I even opened it, sort of thinking, you know, have they rejected me? Is that why it's only one sheet of paper? Is it, you know, congratulations? And once I opened it, I remember just crying. It was kind of one of the the first times I remember feeling as though I had really proved people wrong. There definitely was a bittersweet feeling that year. It felt like such a key achievement. And, you know, I was, it was something that I was so thrilled and, you know, I was proud of myself for. But, you know, that year had been such a difficult year. Obviously, there I was with my, my place at Oxford. But... You know, he never got that opportunity to, to even apply for university. That's always difficult to think about. I chose to study philosophy, politics and economics at university. I didn't know 100% what sort of career I wanted to go into. I knew that I wanted to make a difference. I knew I wanted to do something about some of the injustice that I'd, I'd been seeing, um, and Io's death played a, a big part in that. The boys who murdered Io were arrested. You know, they were convicted, sent to prison. I know for, you know, for some people, some, someone going to prison for a long time is justice. Uh, for me, it kind of became a lot more nuanced. It was me questioning how those boys got into that situation in the first place. You know, how were also fairly young teenage boys in the position that they felt that, you know, their friend had been killed and they couldn't, you know, kind of go through the authorities and deal with it that way. Their reaction was to avenge his death by killing someone who they didn't know, someone they didn't recognise. And for me, that those sort of questions really led me to think like what is going wrong with the system as it is what's going wrong with society that there were people in that position and so for me the fact that they were convicted and sent to prison wasn't the end of it the first day at oxford was so exciting but so terrifying on the first day i met my uh, college mum we have a kind of college family system where it's like a buddy system you know I remember when I first met her she kind of gave me this huge hug and it was it was brilliant but I remember that being matched with a feeling later the same day of am I the only black person here you know I remember literally looking around during freshers and I was I really was and so that was for me that was difficult because I'd grown up in quite a diverse area. Obviously, half of my family 
a black. I've got loads of mixed race or black cousins. I'd always mix with a real like diverse range of people. And there were often points where I just felt like there is literally no one here like me. That can be really difficult at 18 when you're still trying to figure out who you are, you know, what you stand for, what you want to do with the rest of your life. It could be argued that this initiative is... We weren't allowed to work. Oxford, <laughs> Oxford has rules on um, working during term time, but I, I did work every summer and during the holidays. I tutored, like, children or people younger than me. I, I got a scholarship from my college and... I was able to travel out to the United States and conduct primary research for like, my dissertation. I looked at police brutality and how police brutality and police shootings impact young children's attitudes to the police. And unsurprisingly, I found that, you know, young black kids were a lot less likely to call the police in, you know, dangerous situations. That was super important for me and having seen it in the US and, and kind of realising that these things were happening in the UK too that really drove me to want to be a part of that change. I started to look more into the parallels that I could see here. And that kind of got me interested in, in British law, particularly, you know, the discrepancies in our criminal justice system, some of the, the kind of institutional problems that we have. And I was like, well, what better way is there to change it than to actually kind of be in the profession and be able to change it from the inside? After I finished my degree, I did my law conversion course. It was expensive. I'd obviously le le left university with a lot of debt, as I'm sure many do. And that course, you know, I, I couldn't get any funding for. So I, I worked three days a week and it was a full time course. So what I had to do is catch up with the lectures at the weekend. After that, it kind of, things started to fall into place. I, I started doing some, what we call mini pupillages, which are shadowing a barrister, doing a bit of work for them, um, going to court with them. I loved them. And then I was really fortunate and got offered pupillage that year and got offered a scholarship for the, the next year of training. The training course was £19,000. Um, and given I'd already spent 11000 on my conversion course, it's a lot of money. For me, that's a huge barrier to our profession. I remember when I first said that I wanted to, you know, be a barrister, the amount of people that told me that pupillage was basically impossible. And, you know, I didn't come from the right sort of background anyway, so I would find it extra difficult. Everyone's view was, you know, this is a kind of ancient elite profession and, you know, people pick in their image. And so why would they pick this mixed race scale from Essex with a, you know, with a bit of a, a sassy attitude. Like, why why would that be someone that they opt for? And, and that did worry me. Of course it did. I, I kind of thought, you know, is there some truth in that? Am I going to be too much? You know, am I going to be too different? When I went to interviews and I'd look at the panel in front of me, no one looked like me at all. I wasn't interviewed by anyone who wasn't white. And it was mostly men. The profession generally seems to, you know, have an underrepresentation of black people, of other ethnic minority people, but also of women. So I kind of decided to have the mindset that, okay, it may not be perfect right now, 
But that's all the more reason that I should apply and all the more reason that I should try as hard as I can to get into this profession so that I can start trying to implement some of this change. Diversity is so important within our profession for so many reasons. But, you know, one of the key, key reasons is that we represent a diverse range of people. We need to make sure that those people can see you know, that they're represented by people who are from similar backgrounds to them, people that they can trust. It is difficult for people to trust in a system where they can see that actually we've got a huge overrepresentation of, for example, black people in prison, yet there seem to be, you know, hardly any black barristers and hardly any black judges. It does make you wonder, is this system fair? Is the system that, you know, I have to trust with my, my freedom fair? We know the facts are there. You know, we know that black people are disproportionately stopped and searched by the police. Are we recognising the impact that that can have on, you know, relations between young black kids and and the police? I I personally don't think we are doing enough to recognise that. And that that sort of thing will come about and be better recognised by improving diversity in our profession because there'll be more people speaking out about the issue. There'll be more awareness. There might be more people who have been through it. I'm often asked whether I forgive the boys that murdered Ayo, and it's a difficult one because I don't think it's my place to forgive. But what I can say is that I've come to a place of trying at least to understand. I can't say that I'm at that place yet, but I'm making an effort and I'm hoping that actually if we can fix some of these problems in the justice system, maybe this sort of thing will reduce and maybe there will be less young people's lives taken. The journey to my first day in court felt pretty long. It took five years of studying and then that year of training to to kind of be able to call myself a barrister finally. It was terrifying to meet my client um, and know that, you know, everything kind of rested in my hands. There was no one there to check that I was doing everything right. But it kind of, I remember sitting there in that conference and it just sort of hitting me like, relax, you've got this. There was a real buzz. It was like an adrenaline boost. I felt like I'd been studying for ages. I felt like I'd been watching other people do it for ages. And it was finally my turn and I'd done it and I hadn't messed it up. (laughs) And it was just such a relief. The most important thing that I have learned is that it is so important to be genuine in who you are. One of the things that I was so scared of was that people wouldn't like the real me. You know, the person who likes to go to Ibiza on holiday. That that sort of side of me, I was really worried that actually, like, people would just see that side of me and not beyond that and not see, you know, kind of my academic ability and the the more serious side of me. I was worried that that would all distract from that. And so I used to try and hide it. And actually, what I've kind of come to realise is that part of me is just as important as the kind of the academic, the, the professional side. Because in our jobs, we are individuals. We are independent barristers. We are hired because people want us to be their their voice we're going to court and speaking on behalf of someone else and so actually don't need to hide who you are those little things that make me different can actually really be used to my advantage 
I really do hope that I can be a role model for other people when I was growing up. You know, I, I wish I'd known, you know, other lawyers and, and been able to ask them, you know, ask them questions, like be able to, you know, shadow them for a day. And I try to, to make myself more available to young people, even through, you know, social media platforms so that people can see that actually, you know what, she's actually like totally normal. <laughs> you know, this isn't a far-fetched idea of becoming a barrister. This is the same person who, you know, goes clubbing at the weekends and, you know, she'll, she'll still spend time with her friends and post photos of her and her dog. You know, just like little human things that make people realise that this profession is within their grasp. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. I'm your host, Lisa Smazarski, and you've been listening to the story of Alexandra Wilson. By the age of 25, Alexandra has already had to confront, challenge, and overcome so many hurdles and stigmas through race, class, and gender. From the tragic murder of her friend Ao, a black teenage boy in the wrong place at the wrong time, to discovering she'd become just one of a handful of mixed race and black students at Oxford University. There she also learns of rules not allowing her to work outside of her studies, a rule only those with financial privilege could possibly adhere to. When she entered the judicial system, the challenges continued. She discovered firsthand the differences in how black people are suspected, treated, charged and sentenced. And she found herself working in a profession where race, class and gender are all still barriers. Only with people like Alexandra within the system will true change happen. But it's not right that it must be the strength of an individual or the tragedy of an individual that drives systemic change. It must be the voice and pressure of the many. By hearing Alexandra's story, understanding her experience, then comparing that to the wider facts and figures, we all have a chance to learn and demand change too. We all need voices that sound like ours, people that look like us, whoever we are in every part of society. So to Alexandra and anyone else that dares to dream, hold on to those dreams and smash those barriers down. Change is coming and you are that change. Thank you again to Alexandra. If you want to read her full story, you can buy her debut book in black and white, a young barrister's story of race and class in a broken justice system, which is out now. If you have a story and the lessons you learn from it that you want to share in a further episode of Nobody Told Me, or you know someone else whose story we should share, email ntm at stylist.co.uk or DM the Stylist Instagram account. And don't forget to leave your comments and suggestions in the podcast store. For more inspiring stories from women around the world, visit stylist.co.uk. Thank you for listening to Nobody Told Me.